and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Hannah Fern. For every devastating UK terror attack, events such as 7-7 or the Manchester Arena bomb, or even smaller acts of public violence like the Streatham High Street knife attack in 2020, there are more than twice as many plots that are foiled before they even begin. Lizzie Dearden, who has been reporting on counter-terror and extremism for almost a decade now, found herself fascinated by what happens when we get it right and what kind of person becomes a terrorist in the first place. And she's here to share what she dug up. Hi, Lizzie. Hiya. You've got a new book out, Plotters, the UK Terrorists Who Failed, which tracks the history of some of those also-rans from the last five years. What made you first start looking into uh, these failures? In a way, it happened by accident. I had been covering ISIS's attacks in Europe and then in the UK. And then once I started focusing on terrorism in the UK after the attacks began here in 2017, we started seeing more and more criminal cases where people were being charged with attacks that somehow went wrong. And through my day-to-day reporting and through going to courts and kind of living and breathing each of those individual cases, I started to get more and more curious about these people, these plotters, and what was the difference between them and the people who actually did manage to carry out their attacks. So it's down to the personalities in a sense, like, you know, some of that, um, the people were the the people who really drew you to it rather than the, the, the kind of detail. Yeah, there's something especially weird about seeing terrorists in court you actually sit quite close to them with the way that most British courts are laid out, um, sometimes just a couple of metres away. And at the beginning, I found it very surreal hearing the details of what this person was doing, what they were planning, the weapons they had, the bombs they were making, and kind of looking at often what looked like a perfectly normal guy looking quite bored, (laughs) sat in a box, seeing them in the flesh, really, made me just really interested in in what was going on. So... From looking at all of those together, is it mostly down to the skill of our intelligence services or actually just brute luck that we managed to dodge some of these? And some of them were quite major attacks, potentially, that you looked into. Yeah, it's really a mix. The intelligence services have been doing a, a good job and they have been doing a better job. Um, I think in the book, there's a part where the former head of National Counterterrorism Police admits that at least some of the 2017 attacks got through because they'd been so concerned about what was happening with foreign fighters in Syria and the possibility that they could come back, like they did with the very deadly Paris attacks in 2015, that they'd actually taken their eye off the people who were already here. Right. And accidentally, by stopping more and more people from going to Syria to join ISIS, they left a pool of people who were very frustrated, who ended up doing attacks here instead. So once they spotted that gap, um, which was unfortunately illustrated through a number of terror attacks, they did get a lot better at spotting attacks coming specifically from the ISIS side. So most of the attacks that have been stopped through complicated security service operations were ones that were inspired by ISIS. The ones where luck came more into play tend to be on the far right, and that's because until very recently, the security services did not have an equal level of coverage from jihadist and far-right threats. Until a couple of years ago, ISIS was the sole responsibility of MI5, and it didn't even look at neo-Nazis or um, other forms of far-right groups. So, Is that partly to do with resources? Like they were just prioritising what they thought was most 
significant in, ter- in terms of the threat or was there political decision making there as well? It, it was mainly historic. It was actually a division between what was called international and domestic terrorism. And that division was decades old and actually stemmed out of the Troubles and then 9-11. Domestic terrorism had been assigned to the police, and that included Northern Ireland and everything else. And international terrorism, which was viewed as mainly jihadism, was assigned to MI5. But what happened over the years was jihadism became increasingly domestic and far-right extremism became increasingly international and, and those things no longer had the same level of threat. It's an outdated structure. Yeah, it was very outdated, and and, and they've changed that now. So, yeah, in in some of the far-right plots, there was a lot of luck at work. Um, There was one guy who posted on Facebook that he was going to go to a gay pride night. Someone he went to school with saw it on Facebook by chance, and they actually stopped him walking down the road with a machete. Um, And in another case, a a neo-Nazi was plotting to an attack an MP, and when he discussed it with members of his neo-Nazi group, National Action, he didn't know that one of them happened to have already turned informant for a counter-extremism group. And if that informant hadn't been sat in that pub at that time with that man... So complete chance that he'd turned up to the right meeting at that time. Absolute chance. So there was a real disparity there. Um But, yeah, in effect, all of them are on some level of scale between very organised security service operation and absolute random luck. Yeah, that's slightly frightening to think of it in that way. But then those ones that have been foiled, they must tell um, the security services a lot about what they're looking for in terms of the next big one. What, from your understanding, is the big worry that MI5 currently has? And, you know, what would a future attack look like the ones we've seen before? Are they expecting something quite different? Yeah, the the different point is the concern really what has been seen in recent years is that every time a particular method becomes established it then almost immediately changes so with 9-11-7-7 um, the Mumbai bombings we had um, a series of large attacks over you know, quite a a number of years, but they were all the big ones that had a similar kind of format, multiple attackers, professionally trained uh, with bombs and or guns. And that's how they did it. And then when you have a kind of trend like that, all of the security infrastructure molds around it. So in the Manchester Arena Attack Inquiry, it came out that a lot of the failures to treat those people who could have survived their injuries came because of protocols drawn up with a very specific attack methodology in mind. So they were expecting more people to arrive and that's why they were not rushing in to to Or there to be a second bomb or there to be a gunman on the scene. They were expecting a kind of multi-stage, multi-actor attack. And even though they, they didn't think that was actually happening, all the protocols were drawn up to say paramedics cannot go this in this happen, zone so don't go in because zone, it's so unsafe because we've seen these attacks and there could be someone or something else um, and we had a similar problem in London Bridge and elsewhere and then after Manchester and all of those 2017 attacks a new kind of modus operandi took hold in the UK which is knife and vehicle attacks and to an extent there's not much that can be done about that everyone has a kitchen knife 
Most people have access to a car. car. (laughs) Yeah. Some things have been done in terms of changing the way that you can hire large vehicles. And I'm sure that everyone listening will have noticed normally quite unsightly concrete blocks and things like that around. They're professionally called hostile vehicle mitigation measures. And so things like that have been brought in place to deal with that form of attack. And so what they're kind of concerned about is what comes next. Mm. And to be honest, we don't really know. I don't know. But but what we do know is that people are moving away from organised terrorist groups. And the reason that certain methodologies became dominant in the past is because they would be advocated for and pushed by terrorist groups. So although it was obviously deadly and awful, it created a kind of organised homogeny where ISIS said do knife and vehicle and bomb attacks and here are the instructions. So you kind of knew what people were going to do. Mm. You know um, what you're looking for. You know exactly what you're looking for. people and how they would plan. Exactly. Um, and Al-Qaeda was the same. They were very organised in the way they took people and trained people. Now, increasingly, it's a kind of disparate threat where most people are acting completely alone based off what they've read online. And because once you're in a certain level of online space, particularly encrypted platforms like Telegram, you can kind of pick and choose what terrorist manual you'd like to look at. People don't confine themselves to one thing. You know, I'm a jihadist, so I'll only look at ISIS's manuals. Or I'm far right, so I'll only look at the Norway Shooters Manifesto from 2011. People pick and choose everything, which means that they don't know, that there's no way of predicting what think someone might do um the only thing that makes things predictable to an extent in the uk is that it is quite difficult to obtain the chemicals to make a bomb and it is very difficult to make or or obtain a gun so on the one hand we're protected from the very large scale atrocities that you've seen in other countries and the kind of regular shootings we see in america just by virtue of kind of the laws we have in place and the fact we're an island which is a great thing but there's a caveat I can hear coming. <laughs> yeah, it it just basically means that people are kind of attacking or trying to attack in new ways. Um, one of the trends very recently is people trying to manufacture guns with 3D printers. They've only been used to deadly effect in one attack, and that was in Germany. But it shows that that could happen. Your book is incredibly serious and makes a you know a, a, an important argument around around security, but also in parts it is almost amusing because of the complete inadequacy of some of the plotters. Can you tell us a little bit about the ones that are just ridiculous? Yeah, what's really strange is that all of these mistakes and accidents, you wonder if there are others that we don't know about because they are so (laughs) random. But um, one that springs to mind was a man who tried to attack Buckingham Palace in 2017 And he was an Uber driver. And as anyone who's got an Uber knows, they tend to rely a lot on Google Maps. And so did he. So his plan was to try and kill a soldier or soldiers outside Windsor Castle. And he lived in Luton and he put Windsor Castle into his sat-nav. But he was accidentally, through some kind of mistake, taken to the Windsor Castle pub. (laughs) Um, and he was completely ready. He had a sharpened sword on the front seat and he was listening to lectures by uh, a very kind of famous uh, jihadist preacher. And when 
he went to the wrong place. He decided to drive on to Buckingham Palace and try and attack there instead. But because of the attacks that had recently happened in London, it was too secure. He got stopped by police and, and everything went wrong. And well, Talking yeah. of the royals, though, tell us about the plotter who tried to get others to um, use ice cream. Yeah, the, yeah this guy was um, quite a number of plotters who weren't quite decided on what they were going to do. And in this case, there was a man who was considering a whole range of different attacks. And he was actually most famous for running um, a very notorious telegram channel called Lone Mujahid, where he was mainly trying to encourage other people to commit attacks rather than do them himself. But one of the ideas he came out with is, and I quote, go to the nearest Sainsbury's and put poison in the ice creams so that the royal family will go and buy ice creams from there. And he <laughs> he became famous even among other terror plotters for suggesting this. <laughs> and there was, a, there was a plotter called Sahib Abu who himself was pretty haphazard. I think his defence to why he had a massive sword in courts was that he liked to cut up carpets. So this guy's also not the sharpest tool in the box. And even he was saying, oh, I love you, bro, but that wasn't smart. The disbelievers are going to laugh at you. Um, and, and he was saying that in a conversation being recovered by an undercover agent doing his own plot. So Amazing. So we can well, see... he's not wrong. We are laughing. We are laughing. We are laughing. So he was absolutely right. Um, of course, what he didn't know is that he was kind of making similar mistakes at the same time. I mean, not every terror plotter is the same, as you've just heard, but... What do they have in common? You talked about Sid almost looking at the whites of their eyes and seeing quite ordinary, seemingly ordinary person sitting in court, but they must have some traits that you found to be in common. What, what, what do people look out for? What do the counter-terror experts look out for in terms of traits? Yeah, there are a lot of shared traits, um, and, and I suppose they're ones that aren't exclusive to terrorism. But one of the things, and this sounds very reductive, is people, people are very unhappy and that sounds like an obvious thing to say, but it's where a lot of things that happen very early in someone's kind of radicalization journey stem from. It could be because they aren't happy with their relationships or their sense of identity or their sense of self-worth and they're looking for kind of belonging and status. Often radical narratives from whatever side tend to tell people broadly that whatever's happening in their life is not their fault and is the result of the Western world being against you or the Jews or the Muslims or, you know, add in your kind of scapegoat group here. And that kind of narrative becomes very powerful for people who are very unhappy in their own lives and looking for a reason. It's useful to have a target, an object. Yeah. Exactly. It's not your own inadequacy. Exactly. Um, so often, you know, being unemployed and, and all of those things, it doesn't make you more likely to be a terrorist. But terrorists are more likely tend to, to be, be unemployed, unemployed mm. and unhappy. And there were a few cases of high-profile people who joined ISIS who were university educated, but that's very much in the minority. Often um, we see people who've struggled with education, struggled with work, there was some suspicion that the Westminster attacker Khalid Massoud moved to attack, even though he had been a jihadist actually for many years, moved to attack because of a, a breakdown of his marriage. Depending how far down the road they go in terms of their own unhappiness and desperation, the justification for violence becomes easier and easier and easier. 
there's a lot of keyboard commentators, I would say, rather than experts in the field, who currently claim that far-right extremism is much more of a threat to British life and, and to our safety than extreme Islamism. Is that actually true, statistically? I guess it depends what you count as a threat. In terms of the number of attacks and plots we've had, far more are by jihadists than by the extreme far right. So in terms of actual deaths and actual harm, at the moment we can definitively say the risk from jihadists is is still greater. The risk from the far right has been growing for a number of years, but it was growing from a very low base. So it has been the fastest growing, growing, but it's still not the biggest. But there probably are more far-right extremists than there are um, jihadists. So in terms of what could become a threat or in terms of what affects people in their day-to-day lives, in terms of kind of lesser forms of extremism that people might see online or in their local areas, that's probably more likely to be far-right. And more people, I guess, culturally could be swayed to the far right potentially than extreme Islamism because of their cultural background being you know, white British or so on. Yeah, that's the thing because of the demographics of the sure. UK, there is a kind of wider mm. pool of people. But in terms of how MI5, for instance, perceive what they term as the terror threat, um, they would say unequivocally still jihadist number one for sure. You've had your own experience of facing aggression and, and violent threats from the far right, haven't you? I don't know how much you can say. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so there have been two court cases. One was an incident where I was sort of harassed and shouted at by the leader of a group that was known as the UK Yellow Vests, inspired by the French Yellow Vests, if anyone remembers the kind of petrol protest. But actually they became far-right and conspiracy theorists in nature. They were actually one of the earliest kind of QAnon uh, Mm. focused groups in the UK. And because of the nature of their conspiracy theories, they were very, very anti-media, anti what they called the mainstream media and anti-specifically me because I had reported on them. It wasn't so serious, but essentially this guy saw me in court and started shouting at me and trying to stop me getting in the court and kind of threatening me. And, and there was a poor work experience girl with me who um got the shock of her life. And, and that ended with a restraining order, which he abided by. So that was fine. And then um the second one was Tommy Robinson, the um, co-founder of the English Defence League. He, again... It's kind of anti-mainstream media. As a general rule, most of the far right are because they tend to think that the media, of course, we know it's not a homogenous blob. They kind mm. of think it is. Mm. Um, they tend to think we're involved in various cover-ups or lies or basically they, they think we're kind of the root of all evil. And because I had reported on a lot of things that the far right are interested in, terror attacks, extremism, Earlier in my career, the Mediterranean refugee crisis, I became a kind of figure of focus, a kind of symbolic journalist where everyone would kind of pile on. Tommy Robinson had been sort of focused on me for a number of years and he had been posting about me online to the extent that I was already receiving quite a lot of threats and abuse that I did report to the police as far back as 2018. But um, the police didn't actually do anything until he uh, stalked me and turned up at my house in 2021. 
And as far as we can tell, that was triggered by a request for comment um, to all the non-journalists. There's something called right of reply. And whoever you're writing about, you have to go to them and say, mm, of course. we're writing this yeah. about you. Um, is there anything you would like to say? And in this case, uh, one of his former employees had alleged that he had been misusing supporters' donations, having said they were good for, for good causes like supporting grooming victims and things like that. He had allegedly then spent them on on things that were definitely not that. And when after I went to him for comment, he, he turned up at my house. And um, we still don't know how he found out where I lived, uh, who my partner was. Uh, we don't know how he found out any of our information and when I didn't go down, he started threatening to publicly accuse my partner of being a paedophile, you know, as a bit to kind of stop us running the story. Has any of that ever put you off investigating terror in the UK? Or how does it make you feel as a journalist? You know, you're doing this really important work to expose what's going on um, in the underbelly. And then you're faced with that in your personal life. Yeah, I did think about changing jobs, but not for that long, to be honest. <laughs> um, and when I did think about it, it was partly because... I was really concerned about my family. Mm. I was upset that I'd put them in the firing line without ever really meaning to. But actually it was my partner and my family who were saying, no, 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 you know, carry on doing it. And, and work offered to change my role or have me write under a pen name. But I thought it would be a bit obvious if everything I <laughs> was writing about <laughs> suddenly turned up in this random journalist's name. Um, so I didn't take up any of those offers. And ultimately, I did decide to keep going. But but it is something I considered, not just for me, but, you know, for my friends and family course, as well. Of course. But, you know, glad that you, you carried on. As you mentioned before, you focus specifically on um, terror and, and, and that kind of um, those kind of issues. You did a lot of reporting work on the refugee crisis and the new arrivals in Europe, and particularly after the death of Alan Shenu, who at the time was named in the media as Ilan Kurdi. You may remember the little boy washed up on the beach at Bodrum in Turkey um, during the Syrian war. What impact do you think the government's really aggressive and uh, you know arguably inhumane policies on immigration today are having on the terror risk? Could, could it? drive incomers to extremism yeah it, it's increasing it and it already has in the most recent terror attack to happen in the uk was targeting small boat migrants it was a man who um threw homemade firebombs at the facility that receives dinghies that are rescued in the english channel and brought to shore and in online posts before he did that and then he killed himself very shortly afterwards he said that he wanted to kill muslim children and I think he described them as invaders. The narrative of Muslim migrants invading Europe or invading the UK is very, very old. It's not something that politicians in the UK have created. Sure. Um, but there have been some concerns publicly and also not publicly within the security community that some of the language used by the Home Secretary is inflaming that the, the day after that attack which was very swiftly declared a terror attack um in no uncertain terms by the police um the home secretary herself called channel crossings an invasion to put it mildly that's irresponsible yeah um, i mean she was rightly called out on that but perhaps not for the reasons you're describing she was called out on it because it's you know potentially arguably racism and so on but you yeah. know, there, there are more practical um, considerations too, as you say. Yeah, and we have also, it's still going through the courts at the moment, so I'm limited as to what I can say, but there is a case where a man um, plotted to kill the head lawyer at 
a firm of immigration lawyers that had been identified in news coverage as, air quotes, frustrating deportations of asylum seekers. I think we also have at least one other plot coming up that's kind of related to the channel. So it's difficult to apportion blame on politicians because channel crossings are such a large area of public focus in general and part, like I say, of a much wider kind of far-right narrative. Yeah, it is something to look out for because with the activity we've been seeing at hotels, there is some concern that that could tip over into something a lot more harmful. Did you come away from writing this book feeling reassured or despairing? I think mainly reassured, just with the sheer numbers off the top of my head. At, at the point I handed in the book, 37 attacks had been foiled in a period where 15 had happened. And so the balance is right. <laughs> the, yeah, and, and of course it could be better. And people would rightly say none of those attacks should have happened. I know survivors and people who've lost loved ones and it's not good enough for the security services to say oh sure we messed up manchester but hey look at this guy it doesn't it doesn't work like that at the end of the day but from what i saw through the book and what i've seen through my own reporting the security services have done a good job at adapting to the changes to the threat potentially a bit slowly but they've now adapted to a very disparate online-based, fairly random group of online actors who are just consuming material and jumping into action without telling people what they're going to do, without kind of tripping over any of the wires that people might have been intercept in the past. But the question is, what's going to happen next? Mm. And so for the period that the book covers, 2017 to 22, I was feeling pretty confident. And now, yeah, not sure what's coming. A note of caution. A note of caution. Thank you, Lizzie. Lizzie's book, Plotters, the UK Terrorists Who Failed, is published by Seahurst & Co and is out now in hardback. If you enjoyed this chat, then you can help us reach more people by forwarding the episode link to three friends. And if you like what we do at The Bunker, then you can help us keep going by backing us on Patreon to get the show without ads, plus a lot of extra benefits. I'm Hannah Fern. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Hannah Fern. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Liam Tate, Kasia Tomaszewicz, and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by James Parrott. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.